This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is linking the generations. In the first half, Elder Neil L. Anderson shares his address, Seeing Through the Generations. Then in the second half, Amy Harris speaks on Of Dead Cats and Dead People, How Family History Can Save the World. I'm humbled to be here with you, realizing that each person who is here has chosen to be here. You come uh, with the attitude of learning by faith, and I pray that the Holy Ghost will be in abundance here, that your faith will be rewarded, and that you can learn something that can be helpful to you. I want to introduce my subject this morning by telling you of a very simple event that happened to me 32 years ago during the spring semester of my junior year here at BYU. I was taking a class in a large amphitheater classroom. Entering the classroom on one of those first days of the semester, I sat at the very back, far from the professor. As he began writing on the blackboard and as those around me began taking notes, I realized that I could not see what they could see on the chalkboard. Up until that very moment, I had not imagined that I needed glasses and did not anticipate glasses in my future. That's in some of your futures, you will see, as you reach your junior year. But that experience led me to the optometrist and to a pair of glasses. Suddenly, my world improved immensely. I could see many things that I had not been seeing for some time. The world became much more alive for me. I remember asking myself, why didn't I realize before that I needed glasses? How could I have not known that I was not seeing? While seeing can be a function of our eyes, we also use the word see to mean understand or comprehend. Have you ever asked, don't you see what I mean? Or have you responded, Oh, now I see. My objective today is to enlarge your vision in some very small way that allows you to see or to understand in a way you have not totally seen or understood before. As you live righteously, you will find that during your lifetime your perspective will enlarge many, many times. Usually this shift in perspective is not a dramatic one one day to the next. But over time, the advances are significant. The most important perspective we want to gain was described beautifully by the Savior. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I will start with two rather academic examples and then move to a more spiritual principle. First, a perspective on time. In the same year that I first put on a pair of glasses, 1974, I attended a large fireside held in the Marriott Center where the speaker was Elder Neil A. Maxwell, then a new member of the Quorum of the Seventy. I have never forgotten the talk he shared. It helped me to view my own mortality in a slightly different way. He read from the writing of Brother A. Lester Allen, a former dean and scientist of biology and agriculture on this campus. 
Let me read you this analogy and see if it expands just a little your view of time. Listen closely. Suppose, for an instance, that we imagine a being moving onto our earth whose entire lifespan is only one one-thousandth of a second. Now, the entire lifespan is only one one-thousandth of a second. Ten thousand years for him, generation after generation, would be only one second of our time. Suppose this imaginary being comes up to a quiet pond in the forest where you are seated. You have just tossed a rock and are watching the ripples. A leaf is fluttering from the sky and a bird is swooping over the water. He would find everything absolutely motionless. Looking at you, he would say, In all recorded history, nothing has changed. My father and his father before him have seen that everything is absolutely still. This creature called man has never had a heartbeat and has never breathed. The water is standing in stationary waves, as if someone had thrown a rock into it. It seems frozen. A leaf is suspended in air, and a bird has stopped right over the middle of the pond. There is no movement. Gravity is suspended. The concept of time to this imaginary being, so different from ours, would give him an entirely different perspective of what we call reality. I continue to quote from the Allen analogy. Quote, On the other hand, picture an imaginary being for whom one second of his time is 10,000 years of our time. You got that? One second of his time is 10,000 years of our time. What would the pond be like to him? By the time he sat down beside it, taking 15,000 of our years to do so, the pond would have vanished. Individual human beings would be invisible, since our entire lifespan would be only one one-hundredth of his seconds. The surface of the earth would be undulating as mountains were built up and worn down. The forest would persist but a few minutes and then disappear. His concept of reality would be much different than our own. End of quote. When I first heard this analogy, with time moving so very fast or moving so very slowly, I thought of the words of Alma. All is as one day with God, and time only is measured unto men. And of Nephi's words, As well in these times as in times of old, and as in times of old as in times to come, wherefore the course of the Lord is one eternal round. End of quote. Somehow I sense that my reality, as an individual walking through earthly time, could be very limited without some perspective greater than my own. Now I switch perspectives, a perspective of space. When I see the immensity of space and the intricacies and complexities of objects on earth, I think of the words of Moses. And were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earth like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations. And the words of the psalmist, 
When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And we sing in that glorious hymn, There is no end to matter, there is no end to space. In the powerful words of the prophet Alma, to the deceiver Korahor, we read, All things denote there is a God, yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it. Yea, in its motion, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. I bear witness that he lives, that this supreme creator is he who we call our Heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. A developed perspective of space helps us to see the greatness of our Heavenly Father and that we would be wise to learn of him and to conform our lives to his eternal plan. Let us now look more closely at his plans for us, a plan that he has called the great plan of happiness. For this, we must speak of his words to both ancient and modern prophets. Who you are, you have been for a very, very long time. We are sons and daughters of heavenly parents, who love us and who have sent us upon a course to become more like them. We lived in the pre-existence. Prior to our coming to earth, we were taught of our Heavenly Father's plan. We would receive a physical body. We would learn to choose good over evil. The only begotten Son of the Father offered Himself as the Savior of the world allowing us a way to return to our heavenly home. We rejoiced in the plan, and we fought for it. Many of us also made covenants with the Father concerning what we would do in mortality. In ways that have not fully been revealed, our actions in the spirit world influence us in mortality. We do not have all the answers. But it is very clear that our life is not a coincidence and that it is not by chance that we find ourselves here at this time in human history. The Restoration Scriptures explain a beautiful linking of the generations that once understood open our view and we see our lives in a more complete way. Three thousand years ago, the Lord covenanted with a righteous man named Abraham promising him, In thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. There was a covenant made, a people established, and a promise that through this people many great things would come to pass in the latter days. When the Savior visited the Nephites following his resurrection, he said to them, Ye are the children of the prophets, and ye are of the house of Israel. And ye are the covenant which the Father made with your fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. Ye are the children of the covenant. You and I are children of the covenant. The Savior has declared it, and I confirm it to you. As we come to understand what it means, 
we see more clearly. Mortality comes more into focus, like putting on glasses and seeing the blackboard of our mortality, our understanding grows. The Apostle Peter described members of the Church as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. I repeat, it is not by chance that we find ourselves within this holy lineage, the blood of Israel, with a promise and a destiny that through our lives and the lives of our posterity, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. When we see ourselves in this holy family, those who came before us and those who come after us become very important to us. I have heard President Hinckley say on more than one occasion, I have been thinking a lot about my grandfather and grandmother. I've been thinking a lot about my father and my mother. I have been thinking just a little about myself and my dear wife. And I have been thinking a lot about my children, about my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. And then he concludes with this phrase, And I have been thinking a lot about this wonderful link that binds us all together. I repeat again, this wonderful link that binds us all together. Now you might say, but my parents and grandparents were not like President Hinckley's. They were not members of the Church, or they were not faithful in the Church. Or as a man in Argentina that I called as a stake president said to me, I don't even know who my father is. He had been given the family name of his mother. He had not heard the name of the Church until he was 18 years old. How could he be part of this royal family? Through miraculous circumstances that we will one day appreciate more than we can now explain, each of us has been brought into this covenant family, and we have become children of the covenant. It is not necessary that we be able to explain every detail. Here is where we reverse seeing is believing to believing is the beginning of seeing. I confirm to you that it is not by chance that we are here and that we are who we are. You notice that in President Hinckley's words, he looked both back through his generations, his parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and forward through his generations, his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This is the major point I want to make to you today. As we see through our generations, both backward and forward, we see who we are and we see more clearly what we must become. Let me give you an example. Here is the engagement picture of our son Derek Anderson with his fiancée Erica Weibel. They met here at BYU and fell in love three weeks ago with their caps and gowns. They graduated together three days ago, kneeling at the altar of the San Diego Temple. They were sealed by the Holy Priesthood for time and for all eternity. They look to the future with great hope and anticipation. Their lives will be like all of our lives, filled with challenges, tests, 
happiness and satisfactions, and moments where they must exhibit the character and strength that is in them. If they look back and look forward and see their role in the generations, it will strengthen and fortify them. Let me show you two people in their lives from the past. Daniel Henry Arline, born in 1841 in northern Florida. This is Derek's great-great-grandfather. One day in 1898, he heard the missionary speak in the town square. He felt something inside. Although there was great persecution against the church and against the missionaries as well, he took the missionaries to his home, fed them, and watched over them. He was then 57 years old, but he told his wife, For the first time in my life, I have heard the truth. He and all his family were baptized. Though it was not easy to be a pioneer and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the turn of the century in the southern United States, Daniel Arline remained true to the gospel and to his covenants. Part of who Derek is comes because of the goodness and righteousness of this man, whom Derek has never met. This is Marva Olson Pryor. She is the great-grandmother of Erica. Her life did not take every turn as she expected. She reared her four children righteously in the church without her husband being a member. She once said, If we keep his commandments, we will be blessed and find peace of mind and true joy, but not without trials, for we learn so much from our challenges. End of quote. Her husband joined the church after they had been married 46 years. Part of who Erica Weibel is comes because of the noble life of this great-grandmother. Sister Pryor passed away four years ago. In the world in which we live, there is a great focus on me, I, my world, my style, my satisfactions, and my things. In the popular recent book, Generation Me, author Jean M. Twainy leads with these words. These are on the cover. Why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled, dash, and more miserable than ever before. Now here, we're not miserable. <laughs> here is a paragraph from the book describing some in your generation. Born after self-focus entered the cultural mainstream, this generation has never known a world that put duty before self. Linda's youngest child, Jessica, was born in 1985. I'm sure there's some here born in 1985. When Jessica was a toddler, Whitney Houston's number one hit song declared, The greatest love of all was loving yourself. Jessica's elementary school teachers believed that their most important job was helping Jessica feel good about herself. Jessica scribbled in a coloring book called, We Are All Special got a sticker on her worksheet just for filling it out, and did a sixth-grade project called All About Me. 
When she wondered how to act on her first date, her mother told her, just be yourself. Eventually, Jessica got her lower lip pierced and obtained a large tattoo on her lower back because, she said, she wanted to express herself. She dreams of being a model or a singer. She does not expect to marry until she is in her late 20s. And neither she nor her older sister have any children yet. You have to love yourself before you can love someone else, she says. I'm still quoting from the author. This is a generation unapologetically focused on the individual, the true generation me. Well, this does not describe you, but it describes a part of your generation. I'm finished, of course, with the quote. If we can look back through the generations, we see those who helped us to get where we are now. Whether they were members of the Church or not, those who forged the way before us. And in the restored gospel, we realize even more deeply our responsibility to link them to us through the ordinances of the temple. The Doctrine and Covenants reads, These are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over, for their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation. They without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. End of quote. Now let's see through our generations forward. Who will be your children and your grandchildren? Or if by chance you do not marry, who will be those you influence in the generations ahead? Will Derek and Erica teach their children in such a way that their grandchildren will believe that they are children of the covenant? When we look at our own lives, we must be prepared to look forward into the generations that will follow us. For our footprints will be seen in homes and on paths where we will never walk. As we are righteous, there is a power in the priesthood that passes through us into our posterity, shaping their eternity as it shapes ours. In a blessing, the Prophet Joseph Smith pronounced upon Bishop Newell K. Whitney, the Prophet blessed him with a, quote, a fullness of the good things of this earth for him and for his seed after him from generation to generation. And he said to Bishop Whitney, quote, Angels shall guard your house and shall guard the lives of your posterity, and they shall become very great and very numerous on the earth. I close by giving you a promise. As you can learn to see through the generations, by looking back and by looking forward, you will see more clearly who you are and who you must become. You will better see that your place in this vast, beautiful plan of happiness is no small place. And you will come to love the Savior and depend on Him as His great gift to us makes this all possible. Your influence will continue generation after generation throughout all eternity. I bear witness of these things. Jesus is the Christ. 
the only begotten of the Father. He lives. He is resurrected. One day, everyone from all nations, all generations, all times and all places will kneel and confess him to be who we claim and know him to be, the Savior of the world. He restored the priesthood to the earth. That priesthood and that power is found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He guides his prophets. I bear witness that you are a child of the covenant and pray that you may, through your generations, see the power that is in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is linking the generations. We've just heard from Elder Neil L. Anderson. After the break, we'll return with Amy Harris for Of Dead Cats and Dead People, How Family History Can Save the World. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is linking the generations. Next is Amy Harris, BYU Associate Professor of History at the time of this address, titled Of Dead Cats and Dead People, How Family History Can Save the World. I'm going to tell you two stories today, a short one about dead cats, and a long one about dead people. First, dead cats. Now, I know you might be tired of so many talks beginning with stories about dead cats, but bear with me. My parents' views on pets, cats or otherwise, could not have been more different. My mother grew up in a household that didn't allow animals in the house. My dad grew up in a home where pets, at one point including even a monkey, were allowed inside. Over their 60-some-odd years of marriage, my parents struck a bit of compromise about pets in our home. Smaller, cage-bound animals such as hamsters, snakes, frogs, toads, and fish were allowed inside, but larger animals such as cats, dogs, and any animal destined to become dinner stayed in the garage, (laughs) the doghouse, or the chicken coop. Dogs were confined, but cats were free to roam. Well, they were free to roam as long as I didn't pick them up and dress them in my doll's clothing. When I was very young, we lived on a busy intersection with constant traffic. The combination of this location and the pet policy meant that cats, and there seemed to be an endless parade of them that somehow ended up at our house, rarely died of old age. I liked the cats, and I mourned their loss, and at some point I began to memorize the names and faces of all the cats who had lived loved, and then shuffled off their mortal coils at our house. Eventually, I was unable to keep all of the memories and names straight, and in concern, I asked my mom if all those cats would meet us in heaven and if they would recognize us and we remember them. She assured me they would, that cats would remember me and I it forever. Now, the impact of that story isn't so much about the cats. It is about my mother's assurances that relationships last. Relationships are durable and meaningful, even beyond death. This idea was central to my childhood. As the youngest of nine children, I arrived after three of my four grandparents, a handful of cousins, and my brother had died. 
Knowing that death would not forever prevent me from knowing those people was deeply comforting and grounding. In a way, that early understanding about relationships has shaped my professional pursuits. I've spent my entire adult life studying relationships, particularly family relationships, and the power they have, for good or ill, to shape social, economic, religious, political, material, and emotional possibilities and realities. My research focuses mostly on 18th century England. This means I study dead people and what they can teach us. As Thomas Lecour has put it, the history of the dead is a history of how they dwell in us individually and communally. It is a history of how we imagine them to be, how they give meaning to our lives. It is a history of how we invest the dead with meaning. My research has taught me much about the meaning found in social and familial relationships in the past and today, as well as their undervalued potential to positively influence society and afford solutions for vexing problems. So let's talk about some of those dead people. I'm going to begin with the story of a particular dead person, William Dade. He was born in late 1740 or early 1741 in Yorkshire in northern England. His parents, who married in their early 30s, already had three children when William was born. His father was the local vicar who had a handful of additional livings or parishes that supplied his employment and income. So William and his siblings, a sister and two brothers, were raised in relative comfort that typified the genteel middling sort of England, as the phrase went. William was educated in Yorkshire schools, requiring him to live away from home for long stretches of the year. Once they reached their late teens, both William and his eldest brother Thomas followed their father's path, first to the University of Cambridge and then into the church. Their mother died when William was 12 and their father when William was 18, around the time he entered Cambridge. Two years later, his brother John died at age 22 and was buried alongside their parents in the parish church where their father had been vicar. A monument to their collective memory, likely commissioned by William and his surviving siblings, hangs in the church to this day. At the time of their father's death, Thomas, 24 and single, had been ordained, and 23-year-old Mary, who was also single, presumably lived with him, or perhaps with William, who left Cambridge that same year. Within two years, William had his own living in the city of York when he was only 22. So far, this is a rather unremarkable story of an 18th-century English family. Their parents marrying in their early 30s was not unusual for those who came of age in the early 1700s. On average, women married at age 26 and men at age 28 in that period. It was not unusual for children to die young or to die before their parents, though it was more common in infancy and childhood than in young adulthood, as it was in William's brother's case. In some places, a third or more of children did not survive to see their tenth birthday. Children of most classes, no matter their wealth, left home for employment or schooling in their mid-teens, as the Dade brothers had. This included most young women, though not usually women of the gentry or aristocracy. That the Dade siblings were not married in their mid-twenties was also not unusual for their cohort, which also coincided with large numbers of people who never married somewhere between 15 to 20 percent in the middle of the 18th century. For comparison, current UK statistics suggest that as little as 4 percent and perhaps no more than 9 percent of the population never marries or partners. That the brothers followed their father's occupational path into the Church is similarly unremarkable. Between a quarter and a third of 18th century English clergymen were the sons of clergy. This was typical of the 18th century that perpetuated, often with great vigor, socioeconomic distinctions and inequalities. 
Also typically, sibling relationships were important to the Dade family. Their parents marrying later and dying relatively young meant that for the Dade siblings and many people in this period, siblinghood was the most central and durable of family relationships. People depended on siblings for a host of material, social, and emotional support. They were close or not in ways that might look familiar to you. They had great solidarity and great power that few other relationships did. They continue to have great power and influence today. Like today, 18th century siblings were lifelong. But unlike today, they were often on their own at the center of family relationships. Siblings came before spouses and children who arrived late in life, if they arrived at all, and they outlasted parents who often died before all of their children reached age 30. When siblings fought and struggled with each other, even when their relationships weren't perfect, like some of you and your siblings, it was not always easy to navigate a relationship one did not choose, but which was freighted with so many lifelong expectations. As one 18th century man wrote to his brother, Three wise words from your lips made me think you an inhabitant of another country. You have the art to set me at a distance by three words when I am with you and to draw me to you at a hundred miles off by the same method. But to return to William Dade, his story to this point, his late twenties, was unremarkable and like thousands of others. But in 1770, as he entered his thirties, William made a remarkable decision he decided that Church of England parish registers should contain more information than they typically did. He wanted, in his words, to improve, quote, the imperfect method hitherto generally pursued. If you think that doesn't sound all that earth-shattering to change English parish registers, just be patient with me, because this was an astounding development, a development with untapped potential to better the world today. First, I need to put William Dade's parish registers into a bit of context. English church registers began after Henry VIII's break with Rome and the establishment of the Church of England in the 1530s. From then until the 18th century, entries for baptisms, marriages, and burials typically had limited information. Baptism records might record only the name of the child, the date of the baptism, and the name of the child's father. Compared to continental registers, for example, English registers contained paltry information. Even in the first half of the 18th century, English registers became only marginally better. Mothers' first names, for example, were increasingly included. Sometimes extra bits and pieces might be included. Birth dates for the child or occupation of the father might sometimes appear. William Dade himself benefited from an unusually detailed entry for his christening because his father was a vicar. The priest who baptized William in a different parish took the time to include William's father's occupation and residence though William's mother was not named. Dade followed common practice when he first became a curate and recorded the limited information other priests did. But then in 1770, he began to record more information, such as father's occupation, residence, and family connections. He also encouraged other vicars and rectors to follow suit. Some did, but the real boost to his scheme came when the Archbishop of York encouraged the practice throughout the diocese in 1777. Some vicars obeyed, many did not, and many resented it and gave up after a short time. William's brother Thomas might have been in one of those latter groups, as the registers in his parishes show no such effort to record additional information. Dade was interested in local history, but that interest seems to have come later than his scheme to improve parish registers. It was perhaps his exposure to the old records stored in parish churches that inspired his interest in historical research. He was inducted into the Society of Antiquaries in 1783, and he began two books, 
one on the local history of Holderness, where he had attended school as a boy, and the other a list of births, marriages, and deaths of prominent people. It wasn't just to record extra information or to be a better record keeper that set William apart. Other clergy had similar inclinations. The switch to record more information for Dade did not come from an historical interest or passion for the past as much as it came from a concern for the future. As he wrote in the register when he began his efforts, this scheme, if properly put in execution, will afford much clearer intelligence to the researches of posterity than the imperfect method hitherto generally pursued. He reasoned that families in the future would want to know more about the past, particularly their personal past. What motivated him was future people and their needs. Dade was thinking of how his actions could echo beyond his lifetime into strangers' lives. At its heart, this is what Ari Wallach in a recent TED Talk described as transgenerational thinking. Wallach is referring to an ethic that thinks beyond one's own comfort and considers how actions ripple into the future, long beyond an individual lifespan. Implicit in Dade's actions and in Wallach's argument are two aspects of human instinct. First, the ability to think about, imagine, and plan for the future. And second, the impulse and capacity to think of strangers beyond ourselves. The ability to plan for the future, to think about how today's actions will shape tomorrow, is unique to humans, an ability that separates us from all other living creatures, nicely summed up by the psychologist Daniel Gilbert, quote, We think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has, and this simple, ubiquitous, ordinary act is a defining feature of our humanity. No chimpanzee, according to Gilbert, can, quote, weep at the thought of growing old, smile as it contemplates its summer vacation, or turn down a fudgesicle because it already looks too fat in shorts. <laughs> Apparently, only we have that honor even though we aren't always very good at using that skill to best serve ourselves and others. We have another distinguishing characteristic that has great power, though again we don't always use it powerfully or for good either. That is the ability to cooperate with strangers, to act in their best interest, even in contradiction of our own interests. In fact, the ability to act cooperatively and even altruistically is one of the greatest achievements of humanity. Evolutionary biologists remark on this and assert that we are literally built to cooperate with others, not just with those we know or are related to, but with innumerable strangers. And it isn't just cooperation. Humans have evolved a unique capacity to care about and have compassion for strangers, to take responsibility for strangers. We are built, in other words, to belong to one another. In fact, without this ability, we could not form effective groups of much larger than 150 people. But with this ability, we harness the power of millions and billions. In such large groups, when we ignore this capacity for caring, suicide, addiction, unhappiness, avariciousness expand. But when we act on this impulse, large groups of humans are capable of, are biologically built for, great goodness. I don't think I need to detail the ways that we have clearly not fully tapped into this goodness, that though we are built for compassion, for care, for love, we are also, in King Benjamin's formulation, fallen, weak, incapable of acting on our best instincts, and even enemies to all our best, even divine, impulses. But the fact remains, we are built to cooperate with and belong to not just our kin, but all humanity. Atheists, philosophers, historians, podcasters, Holocaust survivors, writers, therapists, military veterans, ministers, and psychologists concur with the biologists. Building lasting relationships and connections with other people 
is the only way to live happy and meaningful lives. The author and atheist Alain de Botton, whose essay on marriage relationships was the most read article on the New York Times website in 2016. Krista Tippetts, who runs the podcast on Bean. Victor Frankel, who survived a concentration camp. Christian social worker Brene Brown. War veteran and journalist Sebastian Junger. Historian of Mormon theology Samuel Brown. Congregationalist historian and archivist Margaret Bendrith. Methodism's founder John Wesley and BYU's own psychology professor Brent Slife do not, on the surface, seem to have much in common. But they all landed in the same spot, asserting that building relationships with others Loving others is the most important work of humanity, not the byproduct but the purpose of life. In Slife's words at a recent devotional, loving others must be an end, not a means. And in John Wesley's words, quote, The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. This winding through fields decidedly not related to my research experience and training may seem like a long sidetrack. But it demonstrates that when William Dade stated his reasons for adding more information to parish registers, he tapped into two apparently universal human abilities to think about the future and the inclination to belong, to connect. In that respect, he was maybe not so exceptional. His actions are ones that we could theoretically replicate. It was his combination of these two human behaviors that made him exceptional. The social scientists, authors, and journalists I've just listed have emphasized the importance of relationships or discuss the ability to plan for the future. But Dade was doing both simultaneously. He was thinking about relationships across time, across vast stretches of time, and he was thinking beyond the barrier of personal acquaintance to encompass strangers. Many people before him thought of their famous ancestors or about their posterity or about enforcing rules about who constituted sufficiently illustrious ancestors and sufficiently legitimate posterity Dade, on the other hand, stitched together his interests in the past to the lived daily lives of the people whose details filled the books he kept, and then stitched that to the concerns and desires of future strangers. That's not just transgenerational thinking. That is what I call genealogical consciousness. Genealogical consciousness is an ethic, a moral way of behaving based on seeing oneself and one's actions as inextricably linked with past, present, and future people's lives and hopes. Hoping future genealogists would have clearer intelligence in their research doesn't sound like much of a gift, but the real power in Dade's actions is that he considered himself and all those future strangers as connected, that he could do something for them, something that came with no possibility of reward for himself, something they'd be grateful for. He saw them, frankly, as people, not objects, not abstractions, not as something unimportant to himself. Genealogical consciousness means seeing how past, present, and future are connected, again, not in an abstract sense, but in the lived reality of actual thinking, feeling people, and how they and we are connected over time and space. This echoes an idea from Margaret Bendrith, the archivist at the Congregationalist Library. Quote, Instead of defining ourselves through associations with one's famous people or taking our ancestors too lightly by assuming they were not as complex as we are, we should want an encounter with the past that will challenge and deepen us." End quote. Similarly, we need an encounter with the future that challenges and deepens us. Now, most humans want to be remembered, to leave something that lasts beyond their lifespan, no matter the scale of that remembrance. In the words of Umberto Eco, we make lists because we do not want to die. 
Indeed, what are the Book of Chronicles and all the pyramids, tombs, and masses for the dead, if not hopeful expressions that we will be remembered? What else would have motivated the builder of my home in 1951 to write his name on the plaster that was about to be canvassed and painted over, if it was not some vestigial hope that the recording of his name would grant him a measure of immortality that the bricks he used and the walls he built could not? But Dade wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't clamoring to be remembered. He was thinking of, well, us, of future strangers he would never know, and of our need to belong and be connected to something larger and longer-lasting than ourselves. The posterity William Dade imagined appreciating his efforts was not his own. He remained childless until his death in 1790, as did his sister, who died in 1782. And his remaining brother also died childless in 1806. The detailed forms Dade created and which recorded his and his sister's deaths versus the sloppy but more typical account of their brother's burial show that Dade's innovation had limited reach. He and his family passed into obscurity. In fact, despite his importance to English genealogy, his family did not appear as a group on either of the two largest collections of online family trees until this summer, when in researching this talk I organized and grouped together the Dade family files on Family Search's family tree. And it wasn't just the knowledge of Dade's family that died out. Despite additional Church of England clergy adopting his pattern, his remarkable idea did not survive long. The practice largely disappeared after 1813, when regulations about the Church of England registers changed. Parish registers were now required to be kept in pre-printed books that limited the flexibility that had allowed Day to think of registers more expansively. Some vicars continued to squeeze in the extra bits of information into the printed boxes, even into the 1840s, but the practice largely disappeared, never to return. And other than people researching their ancestors in these records, no one knows about William Dade anymore. Well, except now all of you. But all was not lost for genealogical consciousness. Joseph Smith, Wilfred Woodruff, and Susie Young Gates all took their personal religious and spiritual experiences and used them to think about all of humanity across all time and our connections to one another and to God. We should pause here and recognize Susie Young Gates' remarkable work that is often less well-known than Joseph Smith's or Wilfred Woodruff's. Prominent in late 19th century and early 20th century Mormon leadership, founder of the Young Women's Journal and the Relief Society magazine, and active in the struggle for women's suffrage, Gates was also passionate about genealogy. In the 1890s, she collected information from living relatives and traveled to archives in the East to conduct research. In 1902, she fell seriously ill and received a blessing— in the blessing, she was told she would continue to perform temple work, but that she would also, quote, do a greater work than she had ever done before. Her understanding of this blessing turned her from someone acquiring genealogical knowledge for herself and her family to someone deeply committed to genealogical consciousness. She wrote that while she had already been interested in temple work, she now, quote, felt that I must do something more, something to help all the members of the Church. After this, Gates became a formidable force in genealogical efforts for others. At that point, the LDS Church was not heavily involved in genealogy at an institutional level, though individual Church members were active in the establishment of the Genealogical Society of Utah, now the Family History Department of the Church. Gates worked with the GSU, published genealogical articles, 
worked to improve the indexing of temple ordinances, founded the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers, wrote genealogy lessons, wrote the first genealogical how-to manual in the United States in 1912, and made family history work central to the work of Relief Society. She did this for two decades until the Church gradually assumed greater involvement and centralization of genealogical efforts after the 1920s, which was her hoped-for goal all along. Gates's perseverance is partly attributed to her strength of character, but I'd assert it was powered by genealogical consciousness, a power that came when she felt called to do something more to benefit people beyond her own kin. So what is genealogical consciousness for us? Some would claim a largely Mormon audience is full of genealogical consciousness, but I want to push that idea a bit further and assert that a largely Mormon audience is full of genealogical knowledge, perhaps, even genealogically-based identity, but those aren't the same as genealogical consciousness. Genealogical consciousness brings along with it an empathetic wisdom which knowledge alone cannot possess. For myself, genealogical knowledge is intriguing and thrilling. I've been filling out pedigree charts since I learned to write, and finding genealogical information is satisfying and exciting on its own terms. I dare say some of you find it equally satisfying and exciting probably about 2 to 5 percent of you, if my ward statistics on family history work are typical. And while that group can and should expand, and is frankly what my colleagues and I who teach family history majors hope will happen, it is unlikely it will ever be the majority of people. The good news is, though, that though a passionate interest in gathering genealogical knowledge itself is far from widespread, a much larger group is interested in what genealogy can do for them and their families. For example, it is estimated that a third of adults in the UK have been online to look for their ancestors. Most argue that this prevalent interest comes from genealogy's ability to give people a sense of identity. Undoubtedly, the focus on identity is the current obsession in Western genealogy, in the marketing schemes of the $5 billion a year genealogical industry, and even in some aspects of Mormon genealogical practice. But William Dade and Susie Young Gates didn't stop with personal identity. Finding a genealogical anchor for identity is valuable, as it gives a sense of roots in a time that feels rootless, even replacing religion in one Englishman's estimation as something one can believe in. But on its own, the search for identity can bring only partial belonging. Rattling on about endless genealogies in order to prove our special status is not only a tedious thing to do, it is, if we take Paul literally, a destructive thing to do. And the Savior himself warned, that being Abraham's seed was as meaningless as being a rock if it was not accompanied by a more humble way of living. If genealogy stops with individual identity, it will never fully jettison its exclusionary tendencies. Genealogy's historical association with elitist and racist claims shows that it is too easy to slip into tribalism, eugenics, racism, rabid isolationist nationalism, and us-versus-themism. If we focus solely on our own identity, it is easy to myopically think only our ancestors matter. We become all manner of ites, to borrow a phrase. A genealogical understanding based solely on personal identity inevitably leads to excluding others' identities, whether they are based in race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, DNA, nationality, or any other category. Genealogical consciousness, on the other hand, doesn't just avoid these pitfalls. It prevents them has the power to obliterate them, to completely dissolve the destructive boundaries between us and them, to starkly remind there is no them, there is only us, to pull people together despite differences. 
If instead we see genealogical knowledge and even identity as tools, as means to an end, then we're on the way to genealogical consciousness. We often reverse this, prizing knowledge over the wisdom of consciousness. We race to find more names and make the consumption of more information more important than getting to know those who held the names we seek. This is meaningless and exhausting as we chase after ever more elusive proof of our righteous genealogical knowledge as we constantly learn but never come to a knowledge of the truth. We tire ourselves endlessly in the doing and miss the opportunity to become, thinking we can save getting to know them for later. But getting to know them is the point. It is where the real power lies, not the other way around. To paraphrase from Philippians, if there is any consolation from love, any compassion and sympathy in Christ, we need to also find them in one another. We should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than ourselves. Genealogical consciousness goes beyond mere knowledge or pursuit of personal or group identity. Instead, it makes us stop to consider, to reckon, both with their lives and choices and with our own. We can also imagine our shared humanity with people in the past and the choices they confronted. I remember sitting in an English archive reading the papers of the Travel family. One day, while reading Anne Travel's diary from August 1780, I discovered that her, quote, dear sister-in-law and friend, Martha, had died suddenly at the age of 41. I teared up, mourning the loss of Martha. I stopped myself when I realized everyone from 1780 is dead. (laughs) Um, But then, as I considered my response further, I realized I was not shedding tears for Martha's death as much as I was for the pain her death caused her family and friends. Anne wrote that she spent the rest of that evening writing 20 dreadful letters informing friends and family of Martha's death. I can imagine how dreadful that was, the pain of losing a lifelong friend and a much-loved sister-in-law, a person I too had grown to love as I read her letters. I further considered what a devastating blow it would be to me to lose a sibling or a sibling-in-law. It was as if, in that moment, time and distance between Anne and me just collapsed and virtually disappeared, to be replaced with a brief moment of connection and empathy. If, like Dade, we pause to consider the long-since dead, we can pivot to considering present and future relationships. As Margaret Bendroth put it, the choice is not to load our ancestors down with honors or run away from them as fast as we can. Our faith requires us to take the past seriously and to receive its people warmly and wisely. It requires us to be generous and, in a fundamental way, truly inclusive." And I would say it doesn't stop there, because developing genealogical consciousness requires we think about strangers in the past. It develops the possibility of thinking about strangers in the present and strangers in the future. To think about how our relationships and actions will last beyond death will echo into future strangers' lives. In doing so, genealogical consciousness makes heavy demands, demands that we act more compassionately and more Christ-like. In conclusion, I'm going to explain my title, which you will notice was not read aloud today. (laughs) Why didn't I just entitle my talk Developing a Genealogical Consciousness, since that's the point of the talk? Because I had the suspicion, backed by decades of personal experience, that if any words resembling genealogy or family history were used to describe something to be presented to an audience of Latter-day Saints, attendance would either be virtually non-existent or would consist entirely of those already seriously, 
passionately, rabidly interested in family history. As much as I love that latter group, and in fact count myself among them, I wanted to reach an audience who didn't think they had anything to learn about the reasons for genealogical pursuits, or who only feel guilty or overwhelmed when the words family history are uttered. I did not want to burden that group any further. I wanted to offer an additional perspective or alternative approach. Our shared theology is replete with genealogical consciousness and its potential to create meaningful change for the better. As Patrick Mason has put it, this Mormon image of being knit together with the children of God and all our diversity inextricably and intricately interwoven is at the heart of Mormonism's social ideal. It reflects a life-affirming theology predicated on the notion that the entire family of God can and will be eternally bound together, that heaven is less about where we are than who we are with and the quality of our relationships. End quote. Genealogical consciousness is merely a label meant to underscore that relationships with other people in the past, present, and future are durable, built for the eternities, and from them we can access previously untapped minds of divine power. Simply put, we cannot afford to treat genealogy the way we have, as something, to quote an acquaintance of mine, that dude in the third ward does, or something that is satisfied by producing stacks and stacks of temple names in order to show them off or rattle off numbers during Sunday school to impress or guilt others. If that is why we do it, then doing so is the only reward we will ever have. More than something that dude in the third ward or your great aunt does, genealogical consciousness is a way of being, a way of thinking about your place within and responsibility to the generations surrounding you. It holds a promise to erode racism and sexism, to reduce to rubble centuries of hatred and discrimination, to bind us together when all other ways of connecting only seem to drive us ever further apart, to take our instinct to belong and shatter its tribal proclivities and replace them with inclinations to Zion. If Elijah was meant to return in order to save the world from being an utter waste, then there is more for us to do with the manifestation of the Spirit that bears his name. Thank you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was linking the generations with thoughts from Elder Neil L. Anderson and Amy Harris. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.